This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Brian Friel, The Saucer of Larks, which was published in The New Yorker in 1960. Damn it, it's lovely, isn't it, huh? He said. God himself above you and the best of creation all around you. Do you know only that the missus is buried away down in the Midlands? I wouldn't mind being laid to rest anywhere along the coast here myself. The story was chosen by Kevin Barry, whose second novel, Beetlebone, came out last year. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2010. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Deborah. How are you doing? Welcome. Thank you. So, Brian Friel, who died last October, is best known as a playwright. But before writing plays, he wrote two collections of short stories, a handful of which appeared in The New Yorker. How do you think he differed as a playwright and a short story writer? You know, I've been reading through them again over the last few weeks, and maybe it's with the benefit of hindsight. But I think in the stories, you can see very much a young playwright in embryo. He's slightly constrained within the confines of the story as a form, I think. His scenes are kind of very ritually organised. He reminds me of someone else who would have been publishing, I guess, contemporaneously in the New Yorker, V.S. Pritchett, Mm -hmm. as in the stories, they run on the engines of their talk and on their dialogue. He's got as natural and as beautiful ear, as you'd imagine, from somebody who would go on to become a great playwright. But there is the sense that they're crying out to be acted, you know, the stories, that they want to lift off the page. The voices want to be embodied and made carnate. They're much smaller than plays, though. It's interesting, I was looking at a lecture that Friel gave in 1967, in which he said, the dramatist does not write for one man, he writes for an audience, a collection of people, whereas the fiction writer functions privately, man-to-man, a personal conversation. Do you think that's true? I think so very much. You can sense they're, they're lovely stories. They play out really beautifully. There's something very rarely mentioned about what Friel actually is his humour. He's very funny, often, especially in the dialogue. But you can sense... Again, that sort of constraint with him working within this form, it's crying out to be peopled. And it's a complicated manoeuvre to step from prose fiction into writing for the stage. I I say this from personal experience myself. Two very different taskmasters as you work in both forms. I kind of can't help having regret as I read the early stories that he didn't continue in some way on both tracks and that he didn't continue to write stories throughout his career. He's really good at them, you know, but it's, it's. I think anyone familiar with his work as a playwright, and for me certainly two of his plays in particular, um, Fate Healer and Translations are two of my favourite things in, in any form, will know the heights he got to in, in, in drama, but it's a slight regret as a story writer and as a story reader that he didn't persist with these also. It's interesting, he himself was quite critical of his stories. There was an interview that came out, I think, when he was 36, and the collection in which the story you're reading today appeared came out in 1962 when he was 33. Only a few years later, and he, in this interview, was saying that some of the stories should never gone into the book, and many of them weren't good at all. But why do you think he was so hard on them? I think very often, actually, when you look back on your work as a very young writer. There can be quite a ripe note (laughs) that that, that sort of taunts the more mature nose a little. I think they're full of vitality and they're full of life. There's certainly a tendency in the stories, which you never find in his plays, to tiptoe towards sentimentality. They are very much of a time and of a place as well. Ireland 
of the late 50s, early 60s. And they seem now to be kind of wrapped within the pattern or or the colours of that time to a great degree. But there's enough in them, actually, to keep them feeling very fresh and vital line by line as he works them along. But yeah, I think every writer looks back on their kind of earlier work and slightly is inclined to recoil in horror (laughs) from the page, you know. Certainly, I look at stuff I wrote in my 20s and go, oh, my God, you know, right. it's, 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 it's common enough reaction, I think. Yeah. Did you ever know him personally? No, I didn't. He actually, I really liked the way he managed his writing career. He kept at, at himself very much at a remove from official Ireland, if you like. He stayed in County Donegal, would show up at his opening nights and so forth in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. But very few interviews, certainly in the second half of his life, very little sort of public engagement really except on the page and on the stage he didn't go into the publicity treadmill at all I guess early 80s with Field Day Theatre Company when he was involved in setting that up with Seamus Heaney and Seamus Dean et al he would have had a more public role but certainly over the last 30 years or so of his life he was living very quietly and at a, a something of a remove in County Donegal but every few years the clouds would part and new work would appear and it, it was always an event you know Absolutely. Uh, Even in New York, you know, where his plays were very popular. The story you're going to read, The Saucer of Larks, is set in County Donegal on the rural coastline in 1960. Do you think there's anything else that listeners should know before they hear the story? Well, it's very interesting, actually. One of the great themes in all Irish storytelling and story writing is the theme of the blow-in, the person who comes from somebody else and settles in a particular area. And and. The main character in this story, an old Garda sergeant, an old police officer, is from a different part of the country. The amazing thing about Ireland is it's, you know, it's a small, wet, tormented little rock at the edge of the black Atlantic Ocean. And you drive the length of it in five hours and the width of it in three. But the accents change dramatically (laughs) from mile to mile and from village to village. And when the accent changes, I believe all else changes. The humour changes, the soul changes. And the story is very caught up with this. We have this blow in of a county cabin man up in Donegal and he doesn't quite have the reticence that would be native to County Donegal. And it it causes a little slip up. (laughs) Great. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Kevin Barry reading The Saucer of Larks by Brian Friel. The Saucer of Larks. They drove the first ten miles in silence. Once, at a point where the main road veered inland and they followed a narrower track that ran along the rim of the Atlantic, the sergeant took his pipe from between his teeth and said, This is all my kingdom, as far as you can see. And Herr Grass, who was driving the car, said, Yes? in such a way that the sergeant was not sure if the German had understood him. What he had meant, of course, was only that he was the senior police officer in this small district of Irish countryside. The German had replied, Yes, to so many things that the sergeant had said that morning, questions about the work they were on and other parts of the country they had still to visit that the old policeman now resolved once more that he would keep quiet and enjoy the sun. It pleased him that the two in the rear seat, Guard Burke, his assistant, and the other German, Herr Heinrich, also found conversation too difficult. <laughs> 
the sergeant, was a cavern man and a garrulous man. He had been twenty-six years in Donegal, but there were times when its beauty still shocked him, as it did on this spring morning, with the sea spreading out and away into the warm sky and a high, fresh sun taking winging lights out of the granite-covered countryside. He just had to comment on it. Damn it, it's lovely, isn't it, eh? he said. God himself above you and the best of creation all around you. Do you know only that the missus is buried away down in the Midlands? I wouldn't mind being laid to rest anywhere along the coast here myself. Yes, said Hergrass. He was young and clean and polite. Not that it matters, of course, I suppose, where they put you. When the time comes. But it would be nice to have the sea near you and the birds above you, wouldn't it? He stole a glance at the German's face. And you wouldn't be disturbed every ten minutes with funerals crawling past you. I seen them myself years ago when I was stationed in Dublin. Every ten minutes they come. Everyone looking sad and miserable. I'm telling you, everything is dead in them places. Once they put you in them big cemeteries, you're finished all right. Very depressing indeed, Sergeant, said Guard Burke from behind, hoping to match his supervisor's mood. But do you see what I mean about being buried out here in the wilds? The sergeant was warming up. Out here it's not the same at all, Burke. Out here, man, you still have life all around you. Damn it, there's so much good life around you. You haven't a chance to be really dead. Very pretty. Very pretty, said Herr Grass. A grand spot, echoed Burke. The sergeant, who was not too sure that he had made himself clear, stuck his pipe between his teeth again. The car went cautiously because the surface of the road was bad. Houses became fewer. Small quilts of farms here had lost heart in their struggle against obdurate, peaty, rocky earth and disappeared altogether. In places there was nothing but barren bogland and an occasional gnarled tree its back to the ocean and its tortuous arms outstretched to the shelter of the interior. They came in sight of a long, thin promontory of about three miles' length that shot out at right angles to the coastline. "'That's where we're heading,' said the sergeant. "'Out to the tip of yon neck. "'That's where your man is buried. "'Turn right.' when we come to the white rock below. The road, began Hergrass. Who would want a road out to a place like that, said the sergeant. There's a sort of a track, as I remember. Drive on, man. They drove out along the narrow strip as far as they could, but then the track became potted with rabbit holes. Hergrass stopped suddenly, it is safer and quicker to walk, perhaps, he said. Whatever you say, said the sergeant, 
A bit of a walk will take some of the mutton from beneath this shirt of mine. Yes, said Hergrass. Just a manner of talking, said the sergeant. Herr Heinrich, who had not spoken up to now, said something in German to Herr Grass, and Herr Grass gave him the keys of the car. He then went back to the boot, opened it, and took out a spade and a large white canvas bag, which he folded neatly and placed under his arm. Herr Grass joined him, and they talked rapidly together. "'Can I give you a hand there?' called the sergeant. "'Yes,' said Herr Grass. "'Christ,' said the sergeant softly to himself. "'Come on, man,' he said to guard Burke. "'We lead the way.' They followed the track, which ran up the middle of the lean peninsula. At times it broadened into a road wide enough to carry a car, and then it would unexpectedly taper into a thin path and vanish into a bunker of sand. The man that battered out this route must never have sobered, panted the sergeant. Burke was glad of the opening. What do you make of them? he whispered confidentially. Make of what? Them German fellas. What do you mean, what do I make of them? They're doing a job of work here, a duty, just as they're doing the same duty all round the country. And we're here to see that everything's carried out legally and properly. That's what I make of them. And to show Burke that he was not to be drawn into any narrow criticism of the foreigners, he turned around and shouted to the men behind, do you see the wee specks in the water away south there below the island? That's the men from Gola Island shooting their lobster pots. The lobster are exported to France and to Switzerland and to England, aye, and uh, to your own country too. So when you go home, you can say that you've seen where they come from. Yes, called her grass against the wind. What did he say? asked the sergeant. Yes, mimicked Burke accurately. I'm beginning to think he says that just to annoy me, said the sergeant. Half a mile from the end of the promontory, the path dipped sharply into a miniature valley, a saucer of green grass bordered by yellow sand dunes, and the promontory itself ended in a high, blunt hill that sheltered the valley from the Atlantic wind. For a few seconds after they entered the valley, their ears still heard the rush of the breeze, and they were still inclined to speak in shouts. Then they became aware of the silence, and no sooner were they hushed by it than they heard the larks, not a couple, or a dozen, or a score, but hundreds of them, all put invisible against the blue heat of the sky, making an umbrella of music over them. God isn't a grand, eh? said the sergeant. He dropped clumsily on the grass and screwed his face up in an effort to see the birds against the light. Guard Burke sat beside him and opened the collar of his tunic. Herr Grass and Herr Heinrich stood waiting. Damn it, 
Could you believe that there are places like this still in the world, eh? The sergeant said. Do you know there are men would give fortunes for a place like this? Fortunes. And what would they do if they got it? What would they do? What, sergeant? asked Burke dutifully. They would destroy it. That's what they would do. Dig it up and flatten it out and build houses on it and ring it round with cement. Kill it. That's what they would do. Kill it. Didn't I see them myself when I was stationed in Dublin years ago making a mess of places like Malahide and Skerries and Bray? That's what I mean. Kill it. Slaughter it. Her grass had a notebook and pencil in his hand. This is Glenna Fushog? Glown Nafushog, said the sergeant, pronouncing the Gaelic name properly. It means the Valley of the Larks. You need to be careful where you walk here. You might stand on a nest and crush it. Listen to them, man. Listen to them. He tilted his head sidewise, and his mouth dropped open, and his big, fleshy chest rose and fell silently. Grass and Heinrich and barked, look around them casually. After a few minutes, the sergeant gathered himself together, and when he spoke, he avoided Grass's face. Herr Grass, he began, I suppose you never done an irregular thing in your life. Yes? What I mean is, the old policeman's face showed his struggle to find the right words. I suppose you never did a wrong thing. Did something that was against orders. Disobey? The sergeant did not like the word. He hesitated before accepting it. Aye, aye, disobey. That will do. Disobey. Did you ever disobey your superiors, her grass? The German considered the question seriously. No, he replied slowly, then with finality. No. Burke was watching his sergeant keenly. Neither did I, neither said the sergeant. Never. But there are times, I think, when it might not be such a bad thing to... to... He saw Burke watching him and he looked away. There are times when a man could overlook orders. Forget about them. Overlook, said Hergrass. The sergeant got to his feet and faced the German. I'm going to ask you to do something. His breath came in short puffs and he spoke quickly. Leave that young lad here. Don't dig him up. Her grass stiffened. Let him lie here, where he has all that's good in God's earth around about him. He has been here for the past eighteen years. He's part of the place by now. Leave him in it. Let him rest in peace. My orders are, who's to know, I ask you. Who's to tell what happened? I'll fill up whatever forms you have from your government, and Bork here will cause no trouble. It will be a 
private thing between the four of us. No one will be a bit the wiser. It is getting late. We must return to Dublin today, said Hergrass. You don't understand me, said the sergeant. I'm asking you not to touch this grave. Not this one. Do you understand that? He raised his voice and said each word deliberately. Do not touch this grave. I will not tell anyone. Burke here will not tell. I will sign your papers. He wheeled to his assistant. Burke, you try him. He doesn't understand me. It's the way I talk. I understand, said Hergrass, but I have orders I must obey. The four men stood awkwardly, looking at one another. The sergeant's face, which had been animated and tense while he was pleading, held its concentration until the flush of anger at Grass's refusal drained out of it. Then it went flabby, and a nerve under his right eye twitched once or twice. In the silence that followed, the heat of the sun poured down on them in waves. The air was a great void of warmth around them. Gradually, the emptiness was filled again by the larks, slowly at first, then by more and more of them, until the saucer valley shimmered with their singing. The sergeant's weighty body sagged in his uniform. He looked across the valley at the blunt hill. They found his papers on him, he said, speaking in a limp, flat voice. He was a young airman from Hamburg, and he crashed into that stump of a hill over there. It was a night in the summer of 42, and his plane was burnt to ashes. Her grass consulted his notebook. First Sergeant Werner Indler, he read. He was dead when I got here, and buried. The fishermen found him about fifty yards from the plane. They made a grave and laid him to rest in it before priest or anyone came, because it was weather like this and the lad was badly burned. He rubbed his hands down the legs of his trousers to dry the sweat off them. The exact position, is it marked? I know where it is, said the sergeant. Come on. He launched himself forward into the mass of heat and left the others to follow him. The grave, a mound of grass sprinkled with wild mayflowers, lay at the foot of the blunt hill. Her Heinrich opened it and put what remains he found into the white canvas bag. Then he closed the grave again and smoothed over the clay with his hands, leaving the place tidier than he had found it. While the exhumation was being done, the sergeant paced up and down a few feet from where the Germans were working, and Burke went over the dunes to relieve himself. The whole job was completed within twenty minutes. I think uh, that is everything, said Hargrass. Now we are prepared. Right, said the sergeant irritably. We'll go then. This bloody place is like an oven. My shirt is sticking to my back. On the journey back, her grass was more talkative. In slow, 
cautious English. He told him of his early childhood, of his work in the Navy during the war, of his present job with the German War Graves Commission. The following day, he said, he and her Heinrich would motor to County Clare, and on, the day after that, to County Galway. Then they would bring all the remains to the special cemetery in County Wicklow, where there were already over 50 Germans buried. Then back to Berlin, where Greta and his family of three boys were waiting for him. He showed them a photograph of Greta, a plump, carefree girl in shorts by a lake. Back in the police station, the sergeant signed the papers that stated that he had witnessed the exhumation, and Burke signed as witness to the sergeant's signature. Then Herr Grass and Herr Heinrich added their names. They gave a duplicate copy of the papers to the sergeant. They would not stay for a meal. They had to get back to Dublin that night. Out on the street, they thanked the two policemen for their assistance, apologised for taking up so much of their time, and departed. They're gone, said Burke, looking after the car. Aye, said the sergeant. It's no wonder they're a powerful nation, that's what I say. Did you ever see the beat of them for efficiency? And there they are, away off, with a dead man in the car with them, and them as happy as lambs. What do you make of them, sergeant? And did you see that second fella, the Herr Henry Bucko? Did you see him digging away there, as if he was digging potatoes for dinner? Never turned a hair on his head. Aye. And the other lad ticking off the names in his wee book, like a grocer. Ah, oh, but they're a powerful race of people, powerful. And then when... Aye, powerful, echoed the sergeant grimly. Powerful and neat and efficient, them and their notebooks and their dates and their data, aye, and their well-planned cemetery in Wicklow, with their decent dead laid out like neat herrings and a fishmonger's slab. For Christ's sake, who do they think they are? Even they're dead. Are they not safe from them? He stared down the empty road for a moment, looking tired and angry. Then he straightened his shoulders and pushed his stomach in with the palm of one hand. Now, Burke, he said briskly, back inside with us to our own duties. Have you distributed those handbills about the dog licences? This afternoon, Sergeant, I was going to do it. And the tillage census in the upper parish, have you finished it yet? I'll put three or four houses, Sergeant. I'll do them on the bicycle of an evening. Good, said the sergeant. That'll be that, then. The moment of efficiency died in him as quickly as it had begun. He made no move toward the building. His shoulders slumped and his stomach crept out. I don't know a damn what came over me out there, he said in a low voice as if he were alone. What's that, sergeant? What in hell came over me? I never did the like of it in my life before, never in all my years in the force, and then before foreigners too. Damn. 
I'm ashamed to think of it. It made me look like an old man. He raised his cap inches above his head, slipped his other hand under it and rubbed his scalp. He lowered the cap again. I'm damned if I can understand it. The heat, maybe. The heat and the years. They're a treacherous combination, Burke. What are you talking about, Sergeant? said Burke, with exaggerated innocence. You know bloody well what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you something. Here and now, Burke. He prodded the guard's shoulder with his index finger. If ever a word of what happened out there at Glownafushog breaks your lips to any mortal man, now or ever, as God is my judge, Burke, I'll have you sent to the wildest outpost in the county. Now get away out with you and distribute them handbills. Very good, Sergeant. And report to me again when you come back. Right-o, Sergeant. Right-o. The sergeant turned and walked toward the steps of the police station. For a man of his years and shape, he carried himself with dignity. That was Kevin Barry reading The Saucer of Larks by Brian Friel. The story was published in The New Yorker in September of 1960 and in a collection of the same title in 1962. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kevin, what is at stake in this story? Why is it important to the sergeant to leave this old buried German where he is? I think we sense that the sergeant is very much of a particular age here. We learn early on that he's widowed. I think it might be not unfair to say that he's kind of half in love with easeful debt himself at this point. He's thinking about the next realm that awaits him. He's extremely moved by the landscape of the Atlantic coast in County Donegal in only a way that a person not native to it can be. He comes from County Cavan. Those of your listeners not familiar with Irish geography down to that sort of um, (laughs) that level. Forensic level. Forensic level. County Cavan is inland. It's a place of lakes and low drumlin hills without wide vistas. So for a Cavan man to be opened up to the panoramic of the Atlantic coast would really be something. It causes him to have this kind of little epiphanous moment that he soon regrets when when it kind of slips out that he wants this young German airman to remain in his wild and wonderful gravesite in County Donegal. I think you could say from our time and from our perspective and distance, the story does tend to indulge a little in national stereotyping in terms of efficient Germans 
and more garrulous Irish characters. But at the same time, as a portrait of a society, actually, Friel is very prescient in this story. What he worries is going to happen, the Atlantic coast of Donegal in the story, went on to happen. Much of it has been destroyed with awful kind of holiday home developments and and lots of building along it. Um, There are still some beautiful wild spots left that I'm going to stay quiet about in case anybody else tries <laughs> to discover them. But um, much of it was prescient in that way. There's great comedy along the lines of it. Again, the accents are critical to it. I've been providing, as you've heard, there's some very, very authentic Irish country accents. <laughs> um, and Donegal and Cavan might be about, oh God, I don't know, 50 miles apart, but everything has changed when you traverse that distance, you know. Yeah. And, and again, the theme of the blow-in is one of the great recurring and perpetual themes in Irish literature and in Irish drama. A stranger comes to town or a stranger comes to our neck of the woods and sees things through different eyes and maybe sees us as we really are. What's interesting with Friel actually in this story, he can't help having a lyric response to the actual scenery of it, to the Atlantic coastline there. He kind of tries to barb that with comedy along the line, with kind of black comedy about debt, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's there. You know, he's getting it out. Irish writers, God help us, we, we cannot, no matter how hard we try, I think, resist the lyrical impulse, you know. Halfway down the page, the seascape shows up or the sky shows up or the mountains show up. And very often you will try and barb it through satirical means or through something else, but still even in our most anarchic, in our most satirical writers, even in Flann O'Brien, still it will come in that lyrical response to this really extraordinarily beautiful island, or at least as it can seem on one of the rare, bright, sunny days, <laughs> as, is, as is depicted in The Saucer of Larks. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that Friel, I mean, he describes the beauty of the place, but he also says things like there was nothing but barren bogland and an occasional gnarled tree, its back to the ocean, its tortuous arms outstretched to the shelter of the interior. It doesn't make it sound entirely welcoming. This is what I mean when I say he's trying to barb it, you know? <laughs> he, he, he's trying to give us this world, but at the same time he's, he's trying to go, well, you know, okay, it's pretty tough living as well. It's beautiful in its bleakness, if you like. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot going on, I think, in the story under the surface of the talk. It's got a lot of dialogue and it runs along very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. There's great pace in it. It goes along on the engines of its talk, but it's kind of what's not being said under the surface of that talk, where the real drama and the real fiction is, I think. And what you have is a sergeant, an old guy, I think, for the first time, really kind of slipping up in public, showing a little weakness, letting the emotion seep out and very worried, I think, by the end about where this is going and where it's going to bring him. And you have the quite watchful younger guard, Burke, as well, who is aware very much that a slip up is taking place and possibly can see how that might be used to his own future advantage. You wonder why the emotion is attached to this German soldier. The sergeant says that he was there at the time that he Mm. went. By the time he got there, the soldier was already buried, but he sort of witnessed this act of, in a sense, kindness on the part of the fisherman to bury this mm. foreign soldier who'd crashed into their land. And I wonder what the emotion is there and why the attachment to that particular person. I guess that's the great humanity of the story, really, isn't it? That it's this anonymous German pilot that causes this great outburst of emotion mm-hmm. in a person who should be a reticent old country guard sergeant or police sergeant. What I like as well is what he's done, Friel, is he's taken something that would have been a common news story or 
common in, in anecdote at the time, the work of the German War Graves Commission in Ireland in the 50s and 60s. And he's really humanised it beautifully, I think, in the story and made something that's very touching about it. Yeah, it's very, very topical. I mean, that he refers to the German military cemetery in County Wicklow, and that was created in 1959. I mean, I think the Germans were still moving the war dead into that cemetery in 1960 when Friel was writing. So yeah. in a sense, and it's a real rip from the headlines story. Completely. And, it, and it's so hard to do that, to take material from the newsprint and to properly bring it to life and to dramatise it. And quite quickly, it disappeared in 60. So very, very quickly, he's, he, he snagged on something that he would have read in that morning's Irish press or Irish Times and made a story of it. The character actually who strikes me has been very useful to Freel in the story is Gard Burke, who's the more reticent, quieter, mm-hmm. younger policeman sitting in the back of the car who's kind of watching everything and is kind of waiting for his chance and waiting for his slip up. And I think our sergeant can feel the warm breath of the young up-and-comer on the back of his neck, you know. And there's a lot going on again beneath. Like Irish people, Irish men are great talkers. We love very much the sounds of our own voices. (laughs) Um, But we say very little. It's always very much, there are always these silent kind of taunts and tussles and power battles going on at a level just beneath the great babble, the cacophonous babble of conversation that goes on all the time. It can take years to work out what somebody meant by something they said to you in passing (laughs) one night in a bar in a small town in Donegal. And actually there's a quote that I often refer to, I think it came from Norman Mailer when he was talking about men in general. He could very specifically have been talking about Irish men. He said whenever two men say hello to each other on the street, one of them loses. And I think you have that very much in the conversation of Irish men. There are always these secret little power battles going on. Well, there's that interesting moment between Burke and the sergeant when he Burke tries to draw him into a conversation that's critical of the Germans. And the sergeant just shrugs him off and won't have anything to do with it and starts yelling about the lobster pots. Precisely so, yeah. Uh, the, the Burke has sensed a little weakness here. He's sensed a chink of weakness opening up in the sergeant's cover and he, he tries to draw him out more. He tries to get him involved. In, in putting down the, the German visitors, the German officers, the sergeant catches himself in time and regains authority and so forth. But not without knowing, I think, by the end of the story that he has slipped. He, he's made a critical mistake here today. At the same time, this, the, you know, there are police station politics going on in the story and it's what it's about. But what it's about ultimately is it's about the circling of larks above a headland on the county Donegal coast and the sense of feeling that that puts into the place and the atmosphere that that reverberates off the coast. Why are the larks there? Well, I guess they, <laughs> I, guess they <laughs> I guess they nest there, but it's... Um, Where you know, are they it, in it, the it, story? It, it's a purely epiphanous story. The Atlantic coastline of Ireland is a truly magical place and it has various... I cycle it all the time in what passes for an Irish summer. I go up and down in an almost ritual way now around the west coast from County Mayo and Sligo and up to Donegal. Its feeling changes radically as you go from place to place and from cove to cove along it. Sometimes it has an eeriness to it, a kind of a haunted feeling. Um, sometimes there is a real sweetness to its nature without getting too esoteric about it. But I, I do believe that sort of that human feeling and that animal feeling settles down into the stones of our places and it leaves behind a reverberation. And very often as a writer or as an artist or as a musician, what you're trying to do is you're trying to tune in to these odd esoteric vibrations that remain on the air. And I think Mr. Friel 
was at some time in his life, very recent to writing this story, quite taken by a saucer of larks one day on, on the Donegal coast. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about these larks is that they're invisible. They're, yeah, yeah. No one can see them. You can only hear them. Yeah, and it makes it a kind of an ethereal presence, I guess, mm-hmm. in the story. And you have the lovely kind of a description of the sergeant getting down on his knees and squinting up into the light. This must be a historically sunny day they had in County Donegal. I've <laughs> very, very rarely seen the, the Donegal coast in sunlight. But yeah, it's a very sweet and touching and loving story about this young German airman, Werner, having found his ideal resting spot in a place that he's now very much a part of. And as as the sergeant puts it earlier on, there, there can be no debt in a, in a place like this. Life is life is mm-hmm. all around you. And what is going on with the Germans? I mean, do they understand anything? Why do they just keep saying yes? <laughs> I love the repeat on yes is is the great um, is the great comedy in the story. Really, um, I don't know if our German officers are quite as brilliantly rounded in as as a lot of Mister Friel's characters are. They seem to be very much in the service of the mechanics of the story, really, as mm. they go along. But certainly, certainly, there's nice comedy in there. It's hard to know if they are, you know, as the sergeant says, trying to be annoying, or if they really just don't understand what's going on, or if they're choosing I, 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 to overlook I think, it. Yeah, I think they're very clear about what's happened over the course of the day, and I, I think they understand everything really. And I, I think they're being exceptionally polite in the face of the sergeant's little minor kind of meltdown <laughs> here. Do you think there'll be a price to pay for him? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's it's strange with short stories. You should never ask, I think, what happens after the door and the story closes and what happens next. But certainly you get the sense that this is a kind of a key day in an old sergeant's late demise in some way where he has first showed weakness and his quietly spoken young guard in the back seat of the car has seen it. Now, Friel, as you mentioned, was also a bit of a blow-in in this area. He had been in Northern Ireland. He had lived in different parts of the country. Do you think that there's something of him in this character? For sure. I mean, he's a native of Derry, but he's settled in County Donegal. And it might be a very short distance in geographical terms, but there's a sense in Ireland of the geography being compressed to an almost hysterical degree. So if you move five miles away, you might as well be moving to another continent. I've noticed this myself living in different parts of Ireland. You know that the speech is very different from town to town. It can quicken up and slow down to an extraordinary degree. The humour becomes very different. One place it'll be very deadpan and straight-faced. Another place the humour will be hysterical and surreal. And it's, of course, it's all marvellous feed for a writer. It's one of the reasons why we have such a hysterical (laughs) tradition in Irish literature where you can't throw a stick in the country without hitting a poet or an essayist (laughs) or a memoirist over the head. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. It was a pleasure, Deborah, and great fun to read the story. Brian Friel is the author of two dozen plays, including Dancing at Lunasa and Translations, two story collections, and eight adaptations. As a playwright, he won a Tony Award, the Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Play, and the New York Drama Critics Circle Award. He died in October of 2015. Kevin Barry is the author of two story collections, There Are Little Kingdoms and Dark Lies the Island, as well as the novel City of Bohane, for which he won the International Impact Dublin Literary Award and last year's Beetlebone. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. 
The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.